John chapter 3 this morning. John chapter 3, we're continuing on in verses 16 and 17 this morning. While you're turning in your Bibles and getting situated, let me just say a word of thanks to, yeah, I'm not using this one, I just can't move it for some reason. (laughs) Uh, Thanks to our musicians, I'm really thankful for the giftings that God has given to our church, and I, I've really enjoyed the last couple of Sundays and going even further back before that, just the fullness that they add and the work that they put in to rehearse and practice these hymns and leading us. So if you see them after the service, I know they aren't in it for a pat on the back, but certainly uh, the encouragement goes a long way, and so I'm thankful for them and the hard work they put in helping to lead our time and song this morning. John chapter 3, verse 16. Let me read the text familiar to you, but let me read it once again. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Father, this is such a familiar passage. Probably known to most every child who is in the room this morning. And yet it's beauty power is far beyond the grasp of any seasoned, mature saint to fully comprehend. May we approach it this morning not in a sense of over-familiarity, but in a sense of one who has been in a desert who desires a long and deep drink from a cool spring. To know more of what is here. To know more of a God who loves like you do. To know more of a God whose wrath can only be mitigated and subdued by the giving of His only Son. And may we never be the same having thought about this text as we will this morning. And so, Holy Spirit, speak through the Word in which You have inspired and written and preserved it. Make its meaning clear to our minds as You have intended it and given it. May we find Christ precious and sufficient in all things. We pray this for His sake. Amen. Last week we talked more about the love of God and the love of God for the world. That Jesus Christ is the only Savior for the world. And we both proclaimed that in its universal, powerful truth in the sense that Christ is the Savior for all men and We also limited that and delimited that by saying that does not necessarily mean that He will be the Savior of every 
single man. Rather, he is the Savior for the world. And his name must go out into all the world as he commissioned his disciples to go out to the nations because he is the only hope for the nations. There is no other name given among men under heaven whereby you must be saved. There is no God who breathes life but our God through whom you must be born again. As John is making clear in his recording of Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus here in John chapter 3. We've reached the point in this text where now we see that God loved the world that, so that, His, his love has so now provoked Him, compelled Him, constrained Him to now act upon His love. Love is not love in word only, but in deed. And here in the remainder of this wonderful verse, we find the love of God compelling Him to act upon that love. And so we find that the foundation of our redemption in the Father's action towards us. In just the span of a couple of verses, of couple of verses we see a, a joint action. We see Jesus referring to Himself as the Son of Man in verse 14 from His perspective. And now Jesus here in verse 16 as acknowledging Himself to be the Son of God from the Father's perspective. The Father has sent His only Son. They have a common purpose. A common mission. The Trinity is never divided. Members don't have individual agendas. They never have. They're united in purpose. And we find that again in John chapter 17 in Jesus' high priestly prayer in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, the Father's children chosen from eternity past, elect and given to the Son to experience His work of salvation for them. He says, I I pray, I desire that, that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you and these have known that you sent me and I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Think about John's words now in John chapter 3 in light of that statement Jesus makes to His Father. God so loved. Because God is love as we established last week. And that love is, is first and foremost manifest in His love for His Son in eternity past. And now Jesus is praying in John 17, I, the love which you have that, that from eternity past for me, let it be known to those whom you have given me. 
And that is exactly what Jesus says happens, isn't it? In John chapter 3 and verse 16, the Father so loved. Father loves the Son, and because He loves the Son, He honors the request of His Son, the inter-Trinitarian plan to make that love known to the world. Joined in the attribute of love, God the Father gives His Son. The focus of the action is clear. It's a a focus that affects a certain outcome back in John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that He did something. He gave His only begotten Son. Having just grasped it, understanding last week, the love of God, we, we may wonder more even at this, how can God love sinners? I don't know. I've never been able to fully grasp that. and No sinner that has ever lived has fully grasped that. But, but God so loved the world, He loved sinners, but He also loves His Son to the point that His Son would be sent so that the love of God might be known by sinners. The ultimate point of John chapter 3 and verse 16, as much as we have labored to understand the love of God from this particular verse over the last couple of weeks, let let me just say to you now, this is not the ultimate point of the verse. The love of God is not the ultimate point point of this verse the ultimate point of this verse is this that God's love compelled him to give his son and Paul gets that the apostle Paul gets that later and he would write in Romans 8:31 what then shall we say to these things if God is for us who is against us He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? The ones Jesus prays for in John 17. God is the one who justifies. How does He justify? Because He gave His only Son. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, he who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us then from the love of Christ? The love of God manifest in Christ. Will it be tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? It's a rhetorical question. No. He ends in verse 39. Neither will it be height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, God the Father is love. John makes that clear in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. God is love. 
but we know the love of God because God's love compelled Him to give His only Son. And so finally in John 3.16, we see the marriage of the cause and the outcome. God love, yes, but God's love is more than just saying God is love. It is God acting upon His love. And that acting is that He sends His only Son. Because the Son and the love of the Father is sent down, exalted in His death, resurrection and ascension, we find the love of God manifest in our eternal life. This giving love, eternal in its existence, eternal in its purpose, all-powerful in its scope, has always been the consistent outpouring and outworking of the love of God on behalf of those who are His. Always. It's not new when Jesus arrives on the scene. Jesus is simply the greatest manifestation of that. God didn't start loving when He sent His Son. He is acting on what He eternally is, has been, and will always be. And yet in the fullness of time, as Paul would word it in Galatians, God sent forth His Son. This is an action, this is a foundation that, that, that we will never, ever, ever understand. We were in Genesis chapter 20 this morning in our adult Sunday school. And we were looking at the life of Abraham as Abraham once again makes a great foible and faltering view of his faith as he gives his wife over to yet another pagan king in order to protect himself. Oh, she's my sister. Please don't hurt me. And I said to those of you who are here and those of you who aren't here, I'll say it now. Nothing is more repulsive to any normal male than to think of giving one's wife or one's children over to pagans like that. That is absolutely unthinkable. And yet we find the giving of God based in the love of God gave His own Son over to sinners to be crucified, to be murdered. And every father, something within us recoils at that. Who gives their children, not just for good people, who would give their children for the worst of sinners? Not me. Not you. But that is because we do not possess this love of God that moves Him to action on our behalf. Last week I mentioned Isaiah 53, the Lord was pleased. 
Yahweh, the covenant faithful God, was pleased to crush Him, meaning Jesus, putting Him to grief. The Father not only did it, the Father was pleased in doing it. He found satisfaction in giving up His own Son. That, brothers and sisters, is the greatness of the love of God. That He would not only do it, but that He was pleased in doing it. Satisfied by doing it. Not just any gift, but His only Son. His unique Son, as the Greek would be translated more properly here. His one-of-a-kind, unique Son. His Son without rival. There wasn't a second son who he could send if the first son messed up. There, there was no plan B. He is God's one-of-a-kind son, one-of-a-kind only option. There could be no other. Which destroys the cult's teaching that Jesus and Lucifer are brothers. God had one son. And He sent Him first to preach and then to be a sacrifice for sinners. Not for good people as we appear to be this morning all cleaned up and polished up from a rough and tumble week in the world. But to those who possessed nothing but rebellion and contempt for Him. Jesus is the unique, one-of-a-kind, unmatched, unable to be reduplicated Son of God. There is no other God and therefore no other Son. And He came to do what only He could do. To die for sin. We sang it this morning in the first hymn. Hymn number 129, I think it's the fourth verse, it ends this way. Who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. Hugh Martin, the 19th century Scottish theologian, says it this way when commenting on John chapter 3, verse 16. He alone can die death dead. I love that. He alone can die death dead. Why? Because He is the only unique, one of a kind, Son of God, God in the flesh, second member of the Trinity. He did this. And He alone can do this. John would remind the readers of his epistles in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten, His unique Son, into the world, so that we might live through Him. Sounds an awful lot like John three sixteen, restated. Not apart from the Son... Can we be saved? Not even because the Son are we saved, but through the Son we are saved. We have been given eternal life that in Him, in His death, in His resurrection, 
we might have life. In the one lifted up, we have life. Not simply because of Him, not with Him, not just part of Him, but through Him. When God's people needed redeeming, God sends the only one who can save. And it must be through Him in all of who He is and all of what He does that saves us. I want you to notice when God determines to save sinners, He doesn't send a serpent. Go back to verse 14 of John chapter 3. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, just like that. In other words, the serpent wouldn't save you. No outward Mere outward sign will save you. That's why religion doesn't work. It is simply outward signs. Are all the signs wrong? No. But they don't save you. Only Christ saves you. So sending a serpent or sending a religion or sending a sign would not work. So He had to send one who is His only unique Son. Moses wouldn't save them. Look back to John chapter 1, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, however grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Moses, the the great prophet, wouldn't do. The law wouldn't do. So God did what? Sent His only Son. In whom eternity comes from. and In whom eternity rests. He Himself being eternal. He Himself being the Creator and Sustainer of all things. Not only physically in the world, but spiritually. Therefore God must send His Son in whom is eternal life and who alone can grant eternal life that we might be saved. God so loved the world that His love so great, so that He gave His only unique Son. This is God's work. This is stemming from who God is. It can't be anything else. Ultimately, God's purpose is to glorify Himself. And the way He does that is really inexplicable. It's really incomprehensible to mere humans like us. God's greatest desire is to glorify Himself And He does it through the salvation of sinners. I would have no sinners in my story. And yet God is greatly glorified by the salvation of sinners yielding in our good that somehow brings Him greatest glory. What a miracle! Notice now the foundation of the Father's purpose in the last portion of verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave so that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. John continues and writes that great purpose statement so that whoever, in order that all who believe believe what? Believe a list of facts? No. Believe in the church? No. 
believe in religious demonstration. No. Whoever believes in Him. This great demonstration of the love of God has been for the purpose of saving those who would believe. I want you to make note of this. All who believe will have what God speaks of here. Eternal life. Life in its fullest. The issue is that most will not believe. But those who do believe will have guaranteed the eternal life that is in and through the Son. John is not speaking here of superficial or cultural belief. This is not the faith that you hear of on Fox News when we have people of faith. You realize that can mean just about anything nowadays? Well, I'm a person of faith. What do you mean by that? What John speaks of in belief and in faith here is is a a belief of a desperate kind. It's not, well, this is the religious side of me. And I think that's what most people mean when they talk about faith today. You know, they have their, their vocational side, who they are at work. They have their familial side, who they are at home. They have their leisure side which is who they are in their hobbies and then they have their faith side which is their religious itch and who they are in that and how they fulfill that itch that's what people mean by faith that's not at all what john is speaking of here john is speaking of a of a desperate and believing faith If Jesus is the unique and only Son of God, so must be your faith. Unique and only placed in Him. The uniqueness of your faith should match the uniqueness of who Christ is. You don't believe in anything else. You are not trusting in anyone else. Your faith places all of its hope in this one whom God calls His Son, and whom He gave to redeem you. We say this in the Reformation heritage that has been handed down to us. We believe in faith alone. The doctrine of justification by faith alone. And that we do but it must be alone faith in Christ. Not faith in Christ plus this, or Christ in this, and Christ added to this. No, it is faith alone that is alone faith in Him. Our faith, our hope, our aspirations are all driven to Christ. They drive us to Him. Just like the people that... John records Jesus' words as illustrating this truth. When the children of Israel were in the wilderness, Moses lifted up a serpent. And unless you looked to that serpent and nothing and no one else, you would die. 
You must look to that serpent and that serpent alone. That serpent was your only rescue from dying from the snake bites. So it is with Christ. You must look to Him and to Him alone. For He and He alone have been provided by the God from whom all life comes. And in whom all life resides because He is God. our faith and our hope, our aspirations, we must be desperately driven to Him singularly as our only hope and our only help. How do you know if you've believed? How do you know if you've believed? How do you, you, you look at John 3, 6 and say, I wonder if I have believed in Him. I wonder if I have that life of Christ, that life eternal coursing in me. Diagnose yourself. Ask yourself questions. That's helpful. What direction is your life pulled? Where do you go when sin manifests itself in your life? Do you go to saying, you know, I just need to be more disciplined? I just need to, you know reform this area of behavior in my life i i just need to change my environment or my circumstances i just need to even go to church more it's not it it's not it those who believe when sin is manifest when sin surfaces in our life we find ourselves being drawn to christ When we understand our propensity to sin, we flee to Christ. We we run to Christ. We endeavor to be closer to Him who alone saves. We look at every other attempt and say, you know, that's just so much hooey. That doesn't help. That doesn't save. That does not possess the power to change me. Christ alone saves. Christ alone changes. So where do you run? Where do you turn? To Christ or to something else? It must be to Christ alone. He is the unique Son sent for a unique purpose who alone can save and does save. Murray Harris says this, that it is a commitment of oneself. A total Commitment of oneself. And not a commitment in the sense of, well, Jesus, I promise that I'm going to do this. Where do I sign? By commitment, Harris is referring to throwing yourself only upon Christ, nothing else. All in. We are all in. We are confessing. There is no other Savior. There is no other means than Christ. Everything else is jettisoned for Christ. Not my good works. Not my sincerity. It's Christ and Christ alone who is my hope. He goes on to say, more than intellectual acceptance. It is more than intellectual acceptance of the message of the gospel or recognizing the truth about Jesus. Don't ever forget, the demons also believed and trembled. 
to do anything less is to perish. To depend upon anything else outside of Christ is to perish. To add anything to Christ is to perish. Literally, to die with your sins upon you. Because you failed to do one thing. Look to Him. Look to Him who alone removes sin. This may sound overly simple to some of you, but I'll bet you if you would take the time this coming week to think about all the ways that you have heard the Gospel presented and the way people think about the Gospel and the way people present the Gospel and the way maybe you even are tempted to think at times, you will realize one thing. Just how much has been added to Christ. It's Christ. Yeah, we believe in Jesus. We believe Jesus died for our sins. But... You also need to do this. It needs to look like this. It needs to be like this. It's Christ. It's the person in the work of Christ and Christ alone. And to wholeheartedly throw ourselves upon Him as our only hope. To die with your sins upon you. That is the most horrific death. Murray Harris has given us in that little statement, to die with your sins upon you has given us the worst death imaginable. Now we're all human. And we all have certain fears. And we have probably all thought at some point in our life that would be the most horrific way to die. I'm so terrified of dying like this. Of drowning, of being killed in a car accident, of, of, of dying you know, with dementia, of, of all these things, that, that whatever your particular fear is. But let me tell you, the worst death you can die is the death where your sin is still upon you because you did not look to Christ alone. The means are nothing. When compared to dying with your eyes on something beside the unique Son of God who alone is the unique remedy for sin. Jesus says in John 8.24, Therefore I said to you, you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am He, that I am the unique Son of God, the only begotten of God, you will die in your sins. The viper of sin has bitten, and rather than looking to Christ, you were looking elsewhere. Your sin, your religion, yourself, other people, Doubt about, well, my sin's so great, I don't know. No, you look to anything besides Christ, you die. With your sin still upon you. 
So here we find an important and pivotal moment. What then condemns a man? What is it that actually condemns us? What is Christ dying for? If a man is to stand in judgment, if he is to perish, why is he perishing? And the answer is strikingly clear. Even though it may be a a bit confusing. Man condemns himself because he does not believe. When sinners stand before a holy God and they are condemned to life apart from God, to eternal damnation and judgment in a place called hell, What will their sin be that sent them there? Ultimately, I believe it is unbelief. All the individual manifestations of the carrying out of various lusts and uh, and activities and thoughts and ambitions that are contrary to who God is, those are all just fruits of one overarching problem, and that is unbelief. Man condemns himself. By his unbelief. What he does, all the things that we think of as, oh man, I can't believe they did that. Those are just evidences of unbelief. Jesus is clear, unless you believe, you will perish. That is the cause of your perishing, is your unbelief. Now there's a razor's edge here. Isn't there? There's a razor's edge in life while you are living, while it is day, while you may. There is a razor's edge. You must believe because it will affect all of your eternity. Where you look matters. Will you look to Christ or somewhere else? Where you look then will be determined what you believe. It's almost a Vicious cycle, if you will. Looking to Christ alone will save. Looking to anything else will condemn. Christ alone is the point at which we must focus and hope and trust and look. How many of you this morning would say, yes, I believe Christ is sufficient. If you believe Christ is sufficient, then Christ must be your soul's only sufficiency. There must be nothing else that you would consider, nothing else that you would plead, nothing else that you would look to. You must look only to Jesus Christ. Because in the infinite wisdom and knowledge and love of God, God sent one who is unique, His only Son, to accomplish the only avenue for eternal life. So happy that so many of you know this verse by heart. But we recite it, don't we, so quickly? It's like driving a Formula One race car through the Swiss Alps. You just miss everything. You just go blowing by it. 
We recite this verse. We know this verse. But unless we slow down and really meditate upon what God is communicating in His Son here, we miss it. All who believe in Him. We could also say it this way. All who believe because of Him. Because I believe Jesus is the only Son of God. Because I believe that Jesus was born of a virgin and came to earth. Because I believe that Jesus lived a sinless life that I could not live. Because I believe that Jesus went to the cross and the Father placed my sin upon Him because He had none of His own, therefore He could take mine. Because I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead conquering sin because of that. I believe in Him. I believe because of Him. I believe in a lot of things, but I don't often pause to think about them as the cause of my belief. I I believe because Jesus has done these things, my belief is there because He is who He is, because He has accomplished these things. Now, I believe in gravity, as do you. But I don't often go throughout my day saying, you know, that happened because of gravity. I say, well, my finger slipped, or I lost my grip, or I don't say that happened, but gravity caused that, did it not? It caused the pen to fall. I don't sit around pondering the fact that, that gravity affects the very physiology of my body, the way my blood functions and my blood works, and the way parts of your body work. That's why physics are imperative to medicine. You have to understand that, but I don't sit around and think about that. I don't sit around and think about, oh, you know, gravity affects the, the way we use certain types of petroleum products, the, the gravity of oil of this variety is better for certain things than you can be refined this way, but not that way. I don't sit around and think about it, but I believe in gravity. And so when I really sit down to think about these things, it's hard not to stand in awe of the effects that it produces, right? Wow, that's amazing. So it is with the priceless and precious Son of God. It's not mere intellectual assent that here's a story about a kind man who died on a cross in some ancient and dusty land. And we say, you know, I'll buy that. That is a great story. Where I believe in Him like I do other fairy tales and then just keep blowing through life. No, I believe because of Jesus. I I believe because of the effects of what He has accomplished. I believe. I don't just know about it. I know it. None of what Jesus is driving us to. A wholehearted, total committed, I am all in. I am focused upon Him for who He is, because of Him, because of what He has accomplished. 
to be arrested by the wonder of Jesus as we stop and invest our minds in all that He is and all that He has said. To see the miracle of the Holy Spirit's work from conception to completion. Think about that for a moment. The same Holy Spirit that caused a virgin to conceive causes us to believe. He convinces us that Jesus, the God-man, is truly God in all of His deity. Truly man in all of His capacity. Yet without sin. Do we stop and we think about that? Do we meditate upon that? Do we see the, the burden of our sin upon a sinless man who came and lived intentionally, so perfectly, so obediently to every facet of the law that I have broken, that you have broken? Do we see the wrath of God justly and righteously aimed at us? While we possess no desire or ability to change that? Do we see that Christ came and in every step and every possible moment not only lived perfectly but absorbed the oncoming eternal wrath of God for us? Do we see that? Do we see His righteous life given in place of our life so that not only did He die in our place, but He now lives in our place? Because of Jesus. Have you been arrested by this man? Has your hope, has your faith? If so, in looking to Him, Jesus says you will never Never perish. Looking to Jesus, we are promised life both now and eternity. Know what, notice what Jesus says at the end there. He will not only not perish, but He will have, He has eternal life. Brothers and sisters, that life eternal is not waiting for heaven to start. It is now. We have the life of Christ in us now. And it will last forever. You stop to think about that. I have life that cannot end. Maybe that's one, one reason Christians still fear death. It's like, well, this life is going to stop and then the next one starts. No, no, no. You're already living that life. Your life will never stop. It's just going to keep on. It's just going to keep going. It is life eternal possessed now and that will take us through eternity. But it is in us now because of Jesus. People who looked upon the serpent in Moses' day, they eventually died. That, that was only a, a temporary cure for them. As part of the greater illustration of Christ who was yet to come. But this man, Jesus, I love how the author of Hebrews says it, saves to the uttermost, saves eternally. 
both now and forever. It is one life. In Him, those who believe have life everlasting. Why is that? Well, we have that because in that we see the love of the Father. And remember what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, verse 24. Father, You have loved me from eternity. And I want them to know the love You had for me. I want them to see that. I want them to behold that. John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, look, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. This is why the Son was sent by the Father into the world that we could behold the love of the Father. How else would you know it? God is love. But we know that because God has loved His Son and in loving His Son sent His Son that we too might know the love of God that He had for the Son that is now also in us. What a love. What a God. What a salvation. That is manifest in the Son who was sent. The word comes from the word apostle. One who is sent. That God gave. He sent His only Son. Jesus bore all the authority of the Father who sent Him. And He possessed all the power to accomplish the mission He had been given. And this quite frankly, is where Nicodemus is struggling. And it might be where you are struggling. To submit to all of that in total faith. Faith is not inactive. It's not passive. We must submit ourselves to the truths God has communicated through His Son in this verse. We must submit to these truths, these realities. If we don't, we will die with our sins upon us. You will die with your sins upon you. Unless you believe that Jesus, the Son of God, sent because of the love of God, to die in your place so that you too might know the love of God. What a God. What a Savior. What a divine plan of redemption. We'll pick up in a couple of weeks with verse 17. Going down through verse 21. God states it now in the opposite just to preempt that a little bit. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through Him. Just a little hint. You're condemned already. Jesus didn't need to come to condemn you. Your unbelief, you are born as a sinner in unbelief, therefore you are already condemned. 
Jesus came to change that. To redeem. To save. Father, help each one of us. Grant us faith that we might believe. Faith that is unassailable. Faith that is immovable in the Lord Jesus Christ. May Christ be our only hope and the only object of our trust. What love is this? You say it with the hymn writer, Oh my soul, oh my soul, what wondrous love is this? That bore the dreadful curse. Oh my soul. Oh my soul. So Father, what wondrous love You do. Have what wondrous love You are. What wondrous love You have demonstrated in Your Son. May we look always and only to Him. Father, if there is one here this morning who has never been born again to see and believe those things, Father, I pray that You would open their eyes. Grant them faith to believe this morning. That they would confess their need for Christ and run to Him. And only to Him. Being fully persuaded by Your Word and Your Spirit that Jesus alone saves. Father, we look forward to the day when our faith will become sight. When we will begin that next chapter of our lives that exist already. Singing Your praises in heaven. Gazing upon Your Son face to face. The now risen and ascended Son of God. The Lord Jesus Christ at Your right hand. Looking upon Him. Praising Him. For all that He has accomplished on our behalf. Father, take these words. Use them how You will in each heart and each life here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.